I think it's clear, as I saw some of these pieces coming together, that God is speaking, weaving a story in some of our themes. I hope you're noticing some of that. If you're tracking with us, you, you'll know that we're in Mark chapter 5. And when I preached it last on Easter, we jumped forward because there's a bookended story here in Mark chapter 5. And we jumped forward to see the raising of Jairus' daughter to celebrate the resurrection life that Jesus brings and gives a foreshadow to, to his own. So we continued in our series, and I said I would pause that middle section of the story, and we'd come back to it. And so beginning to come back to it here, and likely I intend to next week, because I think it's worthy of seeing from the perspective of this woman who comes, and then to the response of Jesus. And I think it is a powerful, simple but powerful response that speaks so much. Such a story is told in these few lines as if we will enter into it. I think this is powerful, poignant, and timely for us to see. A story of healing, compassion, and mercy for the sick, the suffering, and the shamed. This woman was marginalized, overlooked, and ostracized. She was poor. She was disabled, according to the culture and the context. She perhaps was hopeless or nearing hopelessness. I believe she was experiencing homelessness. She represents so many in our world today. Do we see them? Will we welcome them? Will we care? Picking up in the second half of Mark 5, verse 24, here's the story. A great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had spent suffering had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd to touch his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowds passing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the middle story in between Jairus coming in desperation and Jesus going and ultimately rising his little daughter from the grave. Another daughter in the midst that comes to Jesus. A powerful picture. And Mark continues to paint this incredible picture of Jesus. We see as the chapter ends that all who experienced him and his presence were utterly amazed, overcome with amazement. And that becomes a continued theme as people ask that question, who is this? Who, even the disciples, they continue to wrestle. Who just is this that has this power over the winds and the waves, over life and death itself? And they continue to not know how to keep their mouths shut when they don't understand what is going on. I find that amazing that they can challenge Jesus, if not rebuke him. What do you mean, who touched you? Everyone's touching you. <laughs> Listen again to this first sentence. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years 
and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. This is what we know about this woman. We might hear the story and say, we don't know much, but I think we can know a whole lot if we're willing to enter into the story. Some of us will be able to do so easily. Others will need to exercise empathy. If we claim we do not know this woman, then we have so isolated and insulated ourselves from the poor and suffering amongst us that we may also need to confess that we don't know Jesus at all. It's a tragic story painted in just a few lines and yet so often repeated throughout history and even in our world today as we began to hear some more of the ways your generosity and giving has partnered to connect with people just like this woman and to bring them healing, mercy, and hope. So we make this personal to enter into the story. Some of you won't have to imagine hard. Others will need to enter into it because we should humbly see ourselves as no different from this woman. One day healthy, and then something starts to go wrong with our body. An illness, a disease, chronic condition besets us seemingly out of nowhere The doctors think they know what's going on, and so they prescribe medications, they offer tests and treatments, and it it seems to help for a time. There's a measure of relief or comfort, but we know that there's no no healing yet. And we wonder, is that the right word, yet? As we start to get nervous or anxious or fearful, it's uncertain. The doctors don't have really the answers. They are... confused a little bit and sending us to specialists. So we, we pray. Now it's time we start to invite others to pray for us and maybe even come to the elders for anointing and for healing prayer and have, get on the prayer chain. But in fact, as time goes on, because those prayers did seem to help maybe even in the moment or in the days following and having the community around us certainly encouraged us, but there's no healing. In fact, the condition and our symptoms are getting worse. And now new doctors and new specialists with additional tests, and the bills are piling up. We had health insurance when we were healthy because we were working, but we lost our income and were unable to work uh, because of complications to this illness and this pain, although our employer said it was unrelated, downsizing, etc. And so now, as we pray more fervently and urgently, we're also doing so doubtfully, uncertain that anyone's even listening or it would even matter. We had to sell our home and move into an apartment just to take any funds we could gain. Thankfully, the housing market was, was well and we had some equity, but now those funds are running out too. Our spouse has left us because, well, they never saw themselves as a caregiver for life. Apparently, the words for better or worse in sickness and in health were just words you were supposed to say on that day when all was well. The few friends that we had will not take us in because really they don't have the means to care for us either. Their lives are too full and too demanding. And actually, furthermore, they fear that our sickness or unknown illness may actually be contagious or bring disease into their home. And so we feel isolated and alone. Some of you enter into the story very easily. Others, I hope, can exercise empathy I believe this woman was experiencing homelessness, though the text doesn't say it. It does say this. She spent all that she had on medical expenses and was not better. She is alone. There's no husband in the picture. The the verse doesn't say they spent all they had. 
Likely she was alone, maybe never married, but in that culture that would have been unusual. So likely she was married but left. And in that context, in that culture, her husband would have likely been encouraged or affirmed to leave her because of this ongoing illness. Now, many scholars believe her condition had something to do with uterine bleeding, a hemorrhage that had lasted for 12 years. And that means that her suffering was far more than physical and financial, but also spiritual, relational, emotional as well. Her condition in that Jewish culture would have been considered perpetual menstruation. And according to the law, the Torah, that meant she was perpetually unclean, ceremonially and ritually. This is from Leviticus 15, 19. Probably not often read in a church gathering, but very important to this context and to this understanding of the woman's suffering and her shame. Leviticus 15, 19 and following. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Whoever touches her in that time will be unclean until evening, and everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, do we need this kind of repetition? When he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now, if most of us may have made it through our read the Bible through in a year to this point and quit. Leviticus often gets us because of some of these things that we have a hard time resonating and reconciling with the God that we serve and the God that we see in Jesus. It, it takes more effort and work, and they are reconcilable. That's not the scope of this message, but they are, and I encourage us to see them in Jesus and to see how Jesus fulfills all things by his blood. We start to see a theme run through the scriptures in his blood, in healing, and in his presence. All of this was meant to be temporary, and there's something to do with the blood. For this woman, it wasn't just a seven days. It was 12 years. And to be ceremonially unclean meant you were cut off from any communal gatherings, from any worship, therefore, from any festivals or celebrations. You were restricted, or maybe to use the term that we might understand more, you were quarantined. Quarantined for 12 years. Ostracized. Cut off. And to have, for a husband, who would usually stand with his wife, although that culture was very patriarchal, a good husband that would stand with his wife and show love during those seven days, and also be cut off from community, from celebration, from gathering, from the temple, from his God. Imagine that lasting for 12 years. And that's why I believe her husband would have left her. I think it's clear that her suffering is far more than physical and financial I think it's obvious that she experienced deep shame. Look at the way she approaches Jesus in secrecy. Even after she is healed and receives healing and knows it in herself, she falls at his feet in fear and trembling, pouring out her soul. I can see her covering her head and her eyes in shame. I believe compounded shame. As a woman, she was already told in that society that she was lesser. 
Even her own religion taught her that. It was reinforced again and again. As a woman, she would not have been welcomed or allowed to approach a Jewish rabbi for any kind of help without her husband advocating for her. I believe she was ostracized from her community. And get this, her very private condition was made public and broadcast so that everyone could avoid her, so that they too would not become unclean according to the law and not be able to participate in community and in worship. Imagine that shame. And I think her shaming went even deeper, that many believed in that, in that culture at that time and still do today, that our sickness and our illness has a tight correlation to our sin. Therefore, if this is ongoing for 12 years, what has this woman done? Oh, she must be deeply sinful. She must be lying about it because she's not saying it. But God is punishing her. So therefore, let him do his work and leave her. Imagine the shame that comes of being told you are not enough, not worthy enough, that you have done something in you. In fact, it is who you are. She's suffering, she's shamed, she's hurting, she's poor, she's abandoned, she's maybe hopeless. Does this not describe so many countless in our midst? Thank you to Tisa for coming and sharing some snapshots of that story where there is also a glimmer of hope. But of those three that she shared and we were able to help in some way and they're on a path, still probably have a long road ahead, that represents hundreds if not more in our community that do not even get to start the path for whatever reason. I'm certain there's some here who have experienced a deep shame like this and you can resonate, it hurts. It's still an open wound or it's reopening even in just hearing someone else's shame and perhaps in similar ways. Some of you have experienced deep suffering, long-term pain, illness, disease. Nothing I can say today will alleviate your shame or your suffering, but Jesus can. But Jesus does. Look at the way he responds to her. She thinks she can just sneak in and sneak out, be unseen, kind of what she was used to in life, but he would not allow it. He noticed this power has gone out of him like, like a static electric shock power going to a person. Well, I might press into that brief concept, which is a big concept, next week when we come back to this passage. In contrast to the flippancy of the disciples at this whole event, this woman is undone. She's overcome with emotion. Her suffering is healed, but her shame remains. Look at her response. It seems, as I read through it, that she could have snuck away. There was enough of a crowd. She, ha she got her healing just the edge of his garment. He looks around. He does not see her. Who touched me? At that moment, she can leave. She can go. She can fade. But she remains. She crumbles at his feet. She pours out even more. It's as if she's saying, I need so much more from this one than just my physical healing. Could he possibly... Heal my shame and lift it as well and make me whole again. And he does. He does in his response. She comes and she pours out her whole life. She tells him the whole truth, the whole story. It's as if she knows what so many don't know, that coming into the presence of the light will expose all. In John 3, 19, he says, this is the truth. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world that some hated light, preferred darkness, and would ultimately scurry away. 
That does not describe her who says, I can hide nothing. He, he sees me. He knows me. Maybe, maybe he can restore everything to me. And she pours out her heart in a moment of complete humility. While the shame remains, the shame that has not been healed and lifted just yet, but about to, and she will have to walk in that wholeness as she goes in the commission of Jesus. Those who draw near will have all exposed by him, but to not draw near means to remain, to remain in our pain, our suffering, our shame. Would we come and let him see it all as if we could hide anything anyway? Are we desperate for more than just our physical healing? Is, even though that sometimes can be all that we experience and see when we face this kind of chronic pain or suffering or illness. But we see the one with the power to heal and make whole again. That's his priority. I think this woman represents all who are marginalized, shamed, told they're not enough, not worthy enough, and not enough faith. If you believed more, you would be healed. Not good enough. You don't measure up. Unlovable. It's your fault. Worse, it's who you are. A renamed identity. The lies of the enemy that would seek to steal, kill, and destroy our life. And the world reinforces that quite well. I think this woman represents all who suffer, who have sacrificed deeply to be well and haven't found healing, who have prayed their hearts out and feel like God is not listening or has abandoned them, who have lost almost all hope of ever being made whole again. Will we come to Jesus? Will you come to Jesus? Will we all come to Jesus today? I found myself praying this week, hearing a sermon from a friend of mine, to pray for my healing now. I am well. I am able-bodied. I have health. I have capacity. And I am extremely grateful. Probably not enough, but that's a regular prayer. God, thank you. I walk with and enter into life with enough people that are hurting, suffering, hopeless in those places to know what it means to have health, to be able to walk, to get up without pain. To, I say that, to know, as if I could know. I've never been healed of something that deep or that chronic. Some of you have, and you know. Will we all come to Jesus? Will we pray, as I was convicted this week, to pray for my healing? If I live long enough, I will be sick and dying. I will experience pain and suffering in this body, and so will you. I want to have a perspective that I pray for it always, knowing that my ultimate healing and my ultimate wholeness is in Christ alone forever. He says, it is done. And he says to you who are still in that place, it is done. It is finished. I see you that way and no other. And ultimately, any healing we do receive physically on, on earth is but temporary, though we rejoice and celebrate and keep longing for it. It is his desire, but it is done. It is holistic. But would we pray for it now for those that are well and be encouraged, inspired, if not convicted, to live on behalf of those who can't, to live for, walk for, run for, move for those who cannot, and to intercede and to carry burdens. Come to Jesus. I will press into this response from Jesus because I think it's incredible. I think in the one, the one statement response that he gives, he shows that his priorities are much bigger than physical healing, though he loves that. But I believe her physical healing would have been fifth on his list by his response. And I'll press into that next week. Jesus did and does so much more than offer just our physical healing and say it is finished. Our greatest needs go far deeper into our soul to our identity, to our emotion, to our way of thinking and our attitude, to everything. Maybe this morning all we can do is touch the edge of his garment, so to speak. 
to utter a simple prayer, even if it feels dry in our heart or throat, I say, come, come to Jesus. Maybe all we can do is mouth the words of a song. You ever find yourself unable to sing it? Maybe all you can do is mouth it or hum it or receive it in your heart. I say, come, it's the edge of Jesus' garment. Maybe taking communion this morning like it is many mornings is simply like a ritualistic tradition and you want it to feel, you want to feel something more. You want it to mean more. And it is hard, I understand, with a little cup and cracker and plastic to peel, I understand. But maybe it's been for years since you've felt anything in that experience and you want it to be more, but you've given up hope. I say, come, come to Jesus. The edge of his garment is enough. It is enough for our healing. I believe he wants and does and gives so much more, but it is enough. What are your needs this morning? Come. And if all you can do is feeling like you're coming secretly, come secretly. But if you can come publicly, not in fanfare, but if you need prayer today and you don't know the prayers in this gathering who would love to pray and intercede for you, come and find me. And we'll anoint with oil if needed or simply pray if it's a deeper, even unspoken need that you have. Would you come? That's the edge of the garment kind of way that maybe we can be encouragement one to another. Those who are well, feeling well physically, maybe also spiritually, but you empathize or you're exercising that, you're hurting on behalf of others in our community and beyond that are finding incredible suffering and shame, living with it. Jesus invites us and intends us to represent him, to do the very things he does and did. That's what disciples do. We're meant to be in our world as he is, loving the unloved, drawing near to the unclean. Who does our world call unclean? Welcoming the outcast, offering healing to the sick, hope to the hopeless, mercy. Would we be convicted and encouraged to draw from his strength for today and this week, to see with his eyes and to respond with his heart, to quote Rachel Held Evans, because I want to be a little more like Lauren. The miracles of Jesus aren't magic tricks designed to awe prospective converts, nor are they tests from the past meant to sort true believers from doubters. Jesus' miracles are instructions and they're challenges. They show us what to do and how to hope. So what to do? Maybe you've already begun to respond in prayer in intercession, in generosity, partnering with our mercy team. Maybe an action step will be to contact Kathy and say, how can I help in this season? What more can I do? What is needed? And to pray about that response. Respond in action with hope. All of us are meant to draw near. Let us all draw near to Jesus. Jesus, we want all of you. We want more of you. But today, enough. Enough is an edge of your garment. And in that, humble us, Lord. May we be willing to pour out all to you alone and where you lead us to be vulnerable with one another that we might pray for one another and that we might be healed. Where there's confession that's needed, where it's obvious, we know we must confess. I pray we confess freely as a gift, knowing your grace covers all. Where we are uncertain for some here that are still struggling with chronic illness, uncertain even diagnosis, internal pain. And they have also looked for areas of sin to confess, to bring before you and are at a loss ultimately. Is there anything else? Lord, may shame not come. 
May the lies of the enemy never rest and never land. You love them and love them deeply, and you say, it is done, it is finished. May they never stop coming to you for wholeness and health. May we be your body today and in this week ahead. Give us your eyes to see and your heart to respond. Unto you be the glory forever and ever. Thank you, King Jesus.